This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So, shalom everybody. Welcome to Practical Spirituality here in the Holy City of Jerusalem, overlooking the Temple Mount. This is a uh, very special time of year because all of us are clean. Now, unless you did something really stupid since last night, (laughs) you just got reset for the year, which is amazing. Because, like, I mean, dietary things, sexual things, like breaking Shabbat, you know, like like none of us have done any of that. And because Shabbat hasn't hit, unless you, like, really got creepy last night, you're probably okay sexually. You're, you're generally, you know, you're generally uh, eating um, kosher if you're hanging around Jerusalem. So we're all in pretty good shape right now going into Sukkot. And I want to explain what this is all about. The sukkah is a very special and holy environment. It is an environment that is... Um, I don't know what the right word is. Uh, let's say it's digestively sensitive. <laughs> like, we're digestively sensitive. You know, if you eat the wrong thing, it's coming out. Right? So, so the sukkah is, is specifically the schach, which is the thatch over the sukkah, is, represents the spiritual world and it's most specifically representing the clouds of glory that were in the desert in the in when the Jews left Egypt. So the Jews left Egypt and they're they're surrounded by the clouds of glory and they are you know they're just in this super special environment. What you gotta see? Now here's a spot right here. So they're in this super special environment. Now, here's the thing. The clouds of glory were very sensitive. And you'll notice that, that, that the, the, the Torah says that certain people got spit out of the clouds of glory. And they were called the nechlashim, the weak ones. The weak ones got spit out. Meaning, in order to travel with the Jews in this cloud that they were traveling with, you had to stay holy and pure whenever you were inside that cloud. Yeah. The Egyptians were never allowed inside the cloud, correct? They were not allowed in that cloud. Yeah. So the anyway, this cloud of glory was was a, a protected environment and a very special environment. But you yourself had to be on best behavior to be inside the cloud of glory. If you were not on best behavior, what happened? I mean, I can't imagine what the mechanism was, but the clouds of glory would spit you out of the clouds of glory. And so as the Jews traveled, there was always a kind of a group of people following. And they were called the Nechlashim, the weak ones. And now, it wasn't that you couldn't do tshuva and get back in. You could. But the immediate effect of having done something stupid was you got spit out of the clouds of glory. So it was like, if you can imagine, like the Jewish people are like traveling in their camps. You know, they're traveling along. And they're, they're in this cloud of glory. And they're... And then there's these people that are stragglers. They're the stragglers that are following behind. Now, it turns out that the stragglers were attacked by a nation that saw a weak spot. Um, We were... No one would have attacked us at the time, but if you know anything about the nation called Amalek, one of the Canaanite nations, you'd know they're like like super evil. And so they were willing to go for a full suicide attack because there was no way they were going to win. You know, the God of Israel had just decimated the most 
powerful country in the world. I mean, the most powerful civilization in the world was decimated by the God of Israel without the Jews lifting a finger. No one was going to mess with the Jews as they were crossing the desert, except for, of course, this nation called Amalek. And the reason Amalek came in and messed with them was because they saw the weak spot, meaning they saw the, the stragglers. So they thought, hey, we can at least pick off the stragglers and see what happens from there. Let's go after the unprotected ones, because the ones in the clouds of glory were in full protection. And that's what happened. They, they went after them. Now, it's interesting that the word Amalek in Hebrew, which is spelled like this, Amalek in Hebrew is the same numerical value as the word, what's that equal? What is that? Uh, 256, 240. 240, which is the same numerical value as the word suffix, which is doubt. Sorry, I'll put the English up here. 240. So the word Amalek is the same numerical value as the word doubt. And, and in fact, the Jewish people who were the stragglers, they, they had said, the Jewish people were complaining as usual, and, and they, they said to Moses, like, how do we know God is even with us? How do we know God's with us even? And then immediately the next words in the Torah are, Vayavo Amalek, and Amalek approached for their attack. So it's very interesting that, that the Jews state doubt and then there's an immediate attack by Amalek. You'll notice in general that Amalek attacks at times of assimilation. I mean, think about it. Why would anyone assimilate or why would anyone sin? Why would anyone do anything wrong if they had clarity of what, the, what was you know, the right thing or the true thing or clarity of God, clarity of Torah being divine? Like, if you have clarity, you guys ever thought about this, like, what would you do? Or how's this question? Is there anything you wouldn't do for God if you had 100% clarity? If you had 100% clarity, is there anything you wouldn't do for God? So the answer is, for most people, no. There's nothing I wouldn't do. Therefore, you better remain fuzzy. We have this weird unconscious desire for autonomy. There's a part of all of us that doesn't like God as if it's going to help, you know? <laughs> like, like me not believing in God while I'm mountain biking down my trails. You know, I do extreme mountain biking. When I'm mountain biking my trails, me not believing in God mountain biking down the trail or believing in God mountain biking down the trail doesn't really make a big difference to mountain biking down a trail. It's just that I prefer to feel my playing the, the game between order and chaos. You know, the order is stay on the trail, the chaos is going to be on either side. And I want to, I like my autonomy. I like to be there in the driver's seat on my mountain bike. And we all like that. But the funny thing is, is God running the show or you thinking you're running the show, it's all the same anyway. It's, What's the difference? It's almost philosophical. It's academic. It doesn't really matter. So why not ride down the trail with God? 
why not? Might as well. I mean, it doesn't make a big difference anyway. But, I mean, to me personally, it makes a difference to ride down a trail with God. I, I think it's a beautiful experience. Sometimes I'm so busy with technical trails that I must keep my mind on the trail. And, but then as soon as I get to a place where it's like chilled out a bit and I'm just getting ready for the next thing coming up, so then I definitely chill with God in those moments. I also play really great technical, uh, you know, jazz fusion type stuff, pretty hard rocking stuff. And the, uh, so it's definitely a God experience. Not to mention, I keep my feet locked into the pedals. You know, you can lock your feet in. And, and when you're riding a 160 millimeter suspension carbon fiber boutique masterpiece, so the bike totally disappears. There's no bike. Because you don't feel any of the bumps anyway. You're just on this magic carpet ride, shooting through the mind of God. It's good times. And that's without drugs. <laughs> now just add drugs. <laughs> anyway. The, the point is, is that we all want our autonomy. For, and the, what I was just telling you, why am I telling you about mountain biking, is that who cares about autonomy? Like, love the fact that you get to turn left or right, even though you're probably really on some kind of hard drive situation which is being driven from above. But you get to enjoy the choice of, like, meat or milk, dinner or a movie. You know, you, like, you get, you get to actually be involved. Like, enjoy it. But what happens instead is we're afraid of losing our autonomy and we love doubt. We love doubt because doubt keeps you in the... Doubt is your little weird, strange way of keeping yourself in the driver's seat, which is just totally ridiculous. I mean, it doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't do anything for anyone else. It's not helpful. It's not helpful for you at all to do that because it doesn't make a difference. You're still choosing away. You're choosing away all day, choosing and choosing and choosing. So you might as well be in a relationship with God Amalek's all about just seeing the world as happenstance, just random circumstance, cold facts a materialist perspective scientific reductionist like we're, we are around here we are not reductionist, we're always like whoa you know, cold facts are reductionist. It's reducing you down to material atoms, protons, neutrons, electrons. It's a, not a nice place to be. We're at uh, the U.S. itself is at, at now 30, 60, uh, pay, pay game of 83 thousand suicides a year that they're starting to realize they're not coming from depression, they're coming from meaninglessness, from a reductionist society. 83,000 suicides, that's more than car accidents in the U.S., that's more than that's more than uh, breast cancer in a population of 300 million people. Meaninglessness. So it's, we're no friend of Amalek. We're no friend of, of looking at the world as a cold, physical, mathematical equation. Even though it's run by them, we get that it's run by these equations. 
we, we just had Yom Kippur based on equations of the movements of the moon versus, you know, connected to Earth, which was the tenth day. We're into those things. And we also, nobody wanted to be wearing leather shoes or eating after six, whatever it was, 43 or whatever the time was. Like, But it was specific. We're into the technical. But we're not reductionists. We're, we like to live in a very big world. Maybe the atheists think we're fooling ourselves, but at least we're not jumping off a bridge. There's a sense of joy and a continuity amongst the families. and You have something to actually pass on to your kids. And so the, uh, so we just had Yom Kippur, which was the cleansing, the final cleanse of a 40-day process of cleansing ourselves so that we can go in the clouds of glory. Now, if we were in the clouds of glory when we left Egypt, so really you should be eating your... Passover Seder inside a sukkah. But instead, the, the sukkah's been moved six months later to, to now. And the reason is, is because, I mean, there's many reasons given by the rabbis. You can imagine just how many. But this, the reason why we're eating now in a sukkah is because you need to be pure to go into one. And so sukkahs requires Yom Kippur. And after Yom Kippur, then you can go into a sukkah. Now you're pure to go into a sukkah. At the end of Yom Kippur, we said something very powerful. First of all, we screamed Shema Yisrael as loud as we could. But then the code word for how God's hidden the words are Baruch Shem. I'm not going to go into each word, but each word's code word. Baruch Shem Kavod Malchusay Le'Alam Goed. Those six words are code words for God's hiddenness in creation. Because think about it: anything God makes, He is. So the only way to make a world that He's not is to hide Himself in creation. So He gave code words. The code words are Baruch Shem Kavod Malchusay Le'Alam Goed. The reason we whisper those words is because we're talking about how he's encoded, how he's embedded in it. The whole world. Shema, which we yell, is hopefully going to cause enough of a, you know, an earthquake in your brain, which is made of neurons, which are atheists, because neurons are atheists. You know, they just track taste, touch, sight, sound, smell, you know, that they're not believers, your neurons. And it's all right, you don't need your neurons, your billions of neurons to be believers. But they do hear your consciousness telling them it's time for Shema. And it's saying, Shema, you know, like go in deep. Shema's deep. There's a lot of words for listening. Shema means to internalize. Did you know that? You know, Shema means to internalize. Of all the words of, like right now you're listening to me speak, that's not Shomea. That's Lakshi. It's to just, Lakshi means to listen to my, my you know, vocalizations. Shema means to internalize the vocalizations. Uh, you want to slide over one and this man can come sit back there? I was going to send you the other way. What's going on here? You're all going to slide over? Okay. That's an interesting <laughs> thought. Why not? That's honor. That's what happens when you get, when you get gray hair. You get uh, six girls just moving. You're doing that. 
Anyway, but when we say Shema, there we're trying to wake up our neurons. But the fact that God's hidden in creation, because anything God makes, He is. How do you make something? How do you make something out of yourself without being what you make? You understand? Anything you make is made out of what you make it with. If you make something out of clay, it's it's now it may be a teacup, but it's made out of clay. Anything you make is is what you made it out of. So considering that before there was something, there was nothing, which was God. Oh, uh, ladies, we need a few more seats. Uh, is any man feeling chivalrous to bring... We can stand. We can stand. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're already like bubbies. <laughs> That's right, I'll just sit here in the dark. The, um, <laughs> dude, can you, can you pull in three chairs, yeah. please? No, it's fine. Just need two Okay, great. What are we going to say about the next three? Okay, but put the taller one in the back. <laughs> There you go. High in order. If anyone really wants a chair, there's a chair by these ladies over here. Okay. Someone tell me what I was talking about. Whatever. Let's put it like this. I'll just give you the four-second proof of God real quick. Let's say we boarded up the room. We made it hermetically sealed. You could, nothing was left in here. Hermetically sealed. No dust, no nothing. It's completely, totally sealed. And then we, what we did next is we, we um, board up the windows. We get the room completely... We get the room completely... <laughs> Speaking of boarding up the room, I was just closing that window because someone's yelling downstairs. So we get the room completely sealed. Now, what would be in the room if we opened it up a year from now? Dust. No, no, we got rid of it's hermetically sealed. There's no nothing. dust. No, every, very good. Everyone try the word nothing. nothing. Everyone say nothing. 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 You'll see why. Whatever was here is going to remain here. Excellent. He said there will be error. <laughs> but let's say we got the air out. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, if we come back a year later, what would be in there? Two years, hundred years, thousand years. What does nothing make? Nothing. Before there was something, meaning before there was a creation, what was there? Nothing. There was, there was nothing, right? Before there was something, there was nothing. nothing. What does nothing make? Nothing. nothing. Okay, here's the four second proof of God. Before there was something, there was nothing, and since nothing makes nothing, and now that there's something, it must be that nothing was God. I'll say it again. Before there was something, there was nothing. Since nothing makes nothing, and now that there's something, it must be that nothing was God. Now, what, what does that make God? Nothing. But why do we call it God? Because nothing usually makes nothing. But in this case, nothing got busy making the world. So, he gets a new title, don't he? <laughs> Nothing suddenly gets a big title named God. Which is obviously not nothing, but it's certainly nothing compared to what we call something. So when we yelled Shema Yisrael on Yom Kippur night, last, the sec, you know, as it went out, Shema Yisrael, wake yourself up, Shema Yisrael... Then what we usually do is we whisper Baruch Shem Kavod, how God's hidden in creation. Because if God made the world out of all that there was, which was himself, so then what's the world made out of? 
God, which is called in Hebrew Elokus. That's why you always have two names for God in blessings and Shema. Baruch Ata Hashem, that which is beyond space and time. Elokeinu is that which fills space and time. It's like a burrito, okay? Baruch Ata Hashem is the tortilla and beyond. <laughs> Elokeinu is the rice and beans inside the tortilla. Okay? He's surrounding creation, that's Hashem. And he's filling creation, that's Elokim. That's why the word Elokim is plural, because the world's made of multiplicity. You ever thought about that? What's the Jews have a plural name of God? Elohim. Like Yeled, Yeladim, Kadur, Kadurim. Eloko, Elohim is the plural name of God because it's how God manifests in his creation. Everything's made of his Elokus. Everything's made of Elokus. Now, we said Shema only on Yom Kippur because we've just like spent 40 days like working out our stuff and we get totally washed clean. So then we finally, for one day a year, we say Baruch Shem Kavod with full volume. Because now that the veil's been lifted and we've seen in the end that, <coughs> that there's no doubt. And we've also, we've, 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 we've removed our what normally would drive you to do stupid stuff is no longer in the way. So there's no reason to talk about God in code, encoded with this whispering of Baruch Shem Kavod. How about Elohim is on also? Right. It does have the numerical value of nature or the nature. The word Hateva is the same numerical value as Elohim. Nature. Elohim. Okay, now... When you finish with that, so then we go back into nature again with the number seven. Because everything in nature is sevens. Everything. The moon works in sevens. The weeks are in sevens. The, uh, the women's uh, reproductive system works in sevens. The whole natural world, the rainbows in seven, the, uh, the musical scale, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one is in sevens. Everything in the physical world has to do with sevens. This is why men who lack the connection that women have actually wrap seven seven wraps on their arm when they're subjugating themselves to God. Because we don't get this naturally. Men aren't natural. You heard the word naturally, nature, the world of nature. Men aren't as connected to these things. We don't have this seven inside our system like the way a woman does. And we're not built in with this the cyclical nature of things. We are. That's why it's interesting that the sign for a male is like a, a vector. It's an arrow coming off a circle. It's, it's just a vector. And it's, it's not cyclical like a, like a female is, which is represented by the Zion. And so what we said was seven times as loud as we could, is we said, Hashem, that which surrounds space and time, Huha Elohim, that's what fills space and time. Hashem, that which surrounds space and time, Huha Elohim. We said that seven times. Meaning, if you're wondering who Hashem is, this being that, you know, the rest of the world has turned into this nebulous, crusty the clown, bozo, you know, belief system they've got. Judaism has a totally different take on that 
<laughs> first of all, the fact that it's nothing is already a major shift. But then saying that, well, who Elohim? That is all you've been seeing. See, the rest of the world's like thinks we exist, and they're just wondering if God exists. We're saying no, God exists, and you can wonder if you exist. And if you're wondering if you exist, the answer is you don't. No offense. I'm not ignoring you. You don't exist. What I mean by that, obviously, is that is that your projection. Existence, when we think of the word existence, we think it has empirical existence, absolute existence. It, it somehow could stand on its own. But everything is a completely subordinate existence and it is subordinate to the creator that is creating it at all times, perpetually. Brand new, which is really cool. Meaning you're created brand new right now. So are your clothing, everything is being created from ex nihilo, from nothing to something. And so at the climax of our holiest day of the year, we scream, Hashem, Hu Elohim. He is all that's filling creation. That's all there is. And now you're pure. But the problem is, is you've been living your life for years now caught up in some narrative about your about yourself which is like you know no offense but like you'd have to pay me 200 bucks to hear it that's for sure the the <laughs> I used to charge 100 but I noticed I was canceling constantly so I went up to 150 and I continued canceling so I finally got to 200 I mean you ever wonder why shrinks have gone up to like 250 300 it's not because their time's worth that much. That's what you got to pay them to listen to your stories. <laughs> so we've been stuck in this narrative all these years. And by the way, your narrative, if you weren't raised observant, has diverged big time. Not that it diverged, it was never verged. But, but like, let's just say when you were born, you were definitely super holy. So, but it could be your parents let, raised you in a, a way that's, so to speak, divergent from our tribe. So, like, it may look real narrow when you're a little baby, but all that worldview, because worldview is super important. Don't ever take lightly worldview. Worldview puts you in one place and doesn't put you in another. And worldview can make you very, very far from yourself and reality. But the, our worldview, you might have been raised in a worldview that created very divergent paths and it's quite a miracle you're even sitting in here right now and certainly a miracle if you're watching it online now of course if you're raised in Judaism it may be confirming to hear this but if you weren't raised in Judaism so so your narrative has led you in ways that that have taken you far from Judaism far from Torah far from Halakha Far from dietary laws, fire from sexuality, you know, behavior. And of course, just leave it to humankind to create a whole worldview around whatever the current behavior is. That's just the nature of humanity is <laughs> humanity, not the Jews, but the rest of the world, they love to look at what the current behavior is in society and then suddenly stamp that with a moral position. 
Because humanity, humans are moral by nature. I mean, every person, no matter where you find them, has a right or wrong. What's right, what's wrong, that gets a little more arbitrary. But, but every person has a moral, we are moral beings. If, I, if you were born and raised on some island somewhere, and we found you like raised by chimpanzees over there, and we finally find you, and we're like, okay, we're going to bring you back to your parents. You're like, okay, but let me just show you around the island. So you'd be like, okay, well, I guess we'll go there. And they're like, no, 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 we don't go that way. I mean, you'd have rules developed. Only human beings would have rules developed. You would have created a morality on your island. Because whatever, something happened to you when you were a kid there, and like, suddenly that's a bad place. Good and bad would be all over the island. We're, we're moral characters, we're moral creatures. That's the way we work. And so what happened was that if you were raised not in the Torah traditions, if you weren't raised in our ancestral heritage, so chances are you were in divergent ways of living and, of course, stamped with all the moral codes of society, which seem to shift every 20 years, but you know, they are quite arbitrary, but they are what they are, and stamped and backed up with whoever, the academics, the media, whoever's got the loudest voice out there and makes you feel the most uh, embarrassed for not toeing the line. And, and in the end, you wind up with a very divergent path to Judaism. And then comes Yom Kippur. Boom. Hashem. Hu Ha'elokim. He's all there is. There ain't nothing else. It's just a shit. That's all there is. Well, what do you do with that? What are you supposed to do with that? Because you've been living inside some narrative that is so thick you don't even know what it's made of. It is complex. Your narrative is extremely complex. And you think your narrative gives a darn about the fact that you yelled Hashem Huelokim last night? You think your narrative really gives a darn about truth? Your narrative doesn't care about truth. How do you think countries are going to start killing each other if not their narratives? I mean, narratives are more important than life itself. And certainly your narrative doesn't give a darn about anything true. You're addicted to your narrative. You hold on to your narrative like a white-knuckled ride. It's a pretty scary thought. I mean, think about it. Whoever marries you really is someone who's pretty impressed with your narrative. It's like, that's a famous Woody Allen line that said, uh, "Whoever I wouldn't marry anyone who would marry me. <laughs> think about it. Whoever marries you is interested in your narrative, which is the most random, arbitrary, ridiculous narrative ever. No offense. <laughs> but... Cost you two hundred bucks to tell it to me. That's for sure. Yeah, I don't want to hear it. And someone's and you're good, you're expecting to attract someone with their narrative. Well, maybe they have a similar narrative. <laughs> Double trouble. You know, perhaps they have a similar narrative. Uh, Rav Sholem, there's a spot right here, but you can't move the chair because it's blocking the window. This is the rabbi who collects uh, for a family for Shabbat. So anyone wants to help with Shabbat, we'll pass around a cup a little later. Just push right against... Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Am I going to reach a certain age where I do that when I sit? <laughs> Come on.
I'm not, I don't think that's so the <laughs> so you're basically trying to attract someone to your narrative that you don't even like you don't even like your narrative because if you liked your narrative you wouldn't diverge so you wouldn't sorry have so many diversions sorry I went back to different diversions in your life what are all your diversions what's your penchant for alcohol or 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 sports or or all those things you know the word for for fun in Spanish is diversion <laughs> I need a diversion for my life but think about how much you'd prefer to just be really stoned right now. <laughs> you are a diversion addict. And this is why they found that if you give someone a mystical experience, which is you know, a bit of a challenge itself, but if you give someone a mystical experience, suddenly their diversions just disappear, meaning all their escape from their own, because their narrative suddenly... First of all, their narrative gets becomes a joke. They see their own narratives no longer so heavy. But it's not just that. They actually start to realize that, that there's something about being present, connected, here and now, right here, right now, connected, right here, right now. And suddenly they don't need that diversion. People, they have an 85% uh, success rate in getting people to stop smoking cigarettes with one mystical experience. Meaning one experience that led them to realize that their life and their narrative are not as meaningless and arbitrary as they thought. But that there's actually is some kind of puzzle pieces way beyond, way beyond what the immediate experience of life is. Meaning the materialist reductionist theory of life is. And suicidal suddenly realize, oh my gosh, my narrative almost killed me because think about it what are suicidals they're people whose narrative eventually took their life their narrative killed them because we're all telling ourselves stories based on all the experiences of our lives to the point where our narrative can become homicidal I know they call it suicide but I think it's more like homicide being killed by one's own narrative now there's plenty of us who will kill ourselves on the, on the installment plan what is cigarette smoking, if not suicide on the installment plan? And all our other diversions, and eating unhealthfully, and, and um, uh, other extreme behavior. And so we come to Yom Kippur and find out that our narrative is irrelevant. Meaning it's relevant as much as it's relevant, but other than that, it's not very relevant. And then you come back from Yom Kippur and you're on your way back to your house and you walk in your house and you realize what is this place I live in? Now I want you all to remember your house right now. Don't think, think where you normally sleep wherever you're from, all you English speakers. So I just want you to picture your bedroom. If you own a house, picture the house and everything in there. I mean, what is that house if not oozing narrative? Why'd you choose that picture? Why'd you choose that color? Why'd you choose that wardrobe? Why'd you choose that? Why'd you choose that? Why'd you choose that bedspread? Why'd you choose that? What kind of narratives you have over locks on doors, alarm systems, security cameras? What kind of narratives you have? Reinforced cement. 
last week the, there were two storms in two parts of the planet that were laughing at all those narratives. You realize your home is just one big epicenter of narratives in your life. It's, think about it. You get to custom make your bedroom based on your narrative. But you come back from Yom Kippur and you're looking around at your house and you're looking at your, your, your bedroom. You're looking around and you're just saying like, what is all this random stuff? I mean, I've really created some life for myself, but it's... It has, what does that have to do with anything? And for this reason, right after Yom Kippur, God says, get out. So get out. Get out of your house. Go spend seven days. Spend seven days outside your narrative. Spend seven days. You just... Shh, you just dropped your narrative. You just dropped it. And then you just went right back into it? In your home? Get out of your narrative and go spend a week in a thatched hut that even the slightest wind would just knock down. Rain, you're drenched. In fact, you're covered from the dust of the previous days. Go into a thatched hut and spend your week there. Eat there, drink there, sleep there. Do everything you do in your house. Do it out there. Don't go in your house. You got to go to the bathroom. Don't do that in the sukkah. Go to your house. You're done going to the bathroom? Get back in the sukkah. People got spit out of the sukkah and they're smoking cigarettes outside the sukkah or something They're in their diversions. You find yourself there. Remember, catch yourself. Get yourself back inside the sukkah. I know in my sukkah, my sukkah holds 100 people, and I'll, I'll be talking to some guy who, like, he's deciding whether he's coming to the sukkah party. And I'll be talking to him, and he'll notice that I'm not coming out. We're talking at the door, and after a while, he's like, you're not going to come out, are you? And I'm like, no, and you're standing about five centimeters away from a Torah commandment. And I have no idea why you're continuing the conversation out there when you could just take five centimeter steps in, and then we could have the same exact conversation inside the actual commandment. We won't be wearing our tefillin all week. Normally you put the box in your head during Sukkot, you don't have to wear tefillin. You don't wear tefillin. You put yourself in it. You're going in it. Matzah, you take the mitzvah, you put it in your body. Sukkot, you take your body and you put it in the, in the mitzvah. Because Hashem Hu Elokim, He's all there is. There's nothing else. And if you want your life to get straightened out so that your narrative can now make the proper shifts to get your life not divergent from Torah, but in congruence with Torah, you need to be in a sukkah. As much time as possible, spend it inside a sukkah. We have one of the only women's sukkahs in Jerusalem. Not that women aren't in sukkahs, but when it gets too crowded, guess who has to leave? <laughs> the women have to leave because it's, uh, because it's a time-bound positive commandment. And women don't have to do time-bound positive commandments. Men do. Men don't have the time. 
We don't have time built in. So when there's a time-bound positive commandment, thou shalt dwell in sukkahs during that week, that's time-bound. And it's a positive, thou shalt. So that means the men have to be inside the sukkah. But we actually built a, uh, we have a women's sukkah that seats 30 women. The men's side seats about 70 men. And we need a lot of help. This is our chance to take the experience of clean, of Yom Kippur, of the cleanse. Whether you felt it or not, by the way, I'm sure there's plenty of people in this room who didn't feel Yom Kippur very much. It doesn't matter. God God does it anyway. He, he resets the planet every Yom Kippur. And so then we move into this cleanse space, but the clean space needs... It needs us to, we need to be able to get ourselves into the space. We need to be able to, to get our narrative back in line. And so we need to spend a week in a sukkah. I'm highly suggesting anyone learning at Aish gets themselves in a sukkah to sleep. You can just ask whoever's in charge of your dorm room or whatever. Make sure you have a bed in a sukkah. You can just schlep your mattress into a sukkah. Uh, women, if you, if you can figure out a place to sleep in a sukkah, all the power to you. Um, don't ask me. Um, I have enough stragglers. Trying, oh, I shouldn't use the word stragglers because they're in the sukkah. I have enough people, you know, trying to crash in my sukkah after the parties and stuff. So, well, but it's we don't have co-ed sleeping in my sukkah. I'm sure you understand. So we're in a super special time. Yeah, it's a party. We're going to party hard. It's going to be music cranking. we got a bandstand, keg of beer, and special lighting equipment and stuff. It's going to be amazing, but it's also going to be so deep. So deep. Get into that sukkah and just dwell. How many mitzvahs do you have where you just get to dwell? All you have to do is just dwell in the sukkah. Hag Sameach, everybody. Shalom, shalom. Any helpers, please uh, shoot me that WhatsApp ASAP. Um, I'm going to meet with helpers. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.